You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Nadia Shadlow, who was the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy on the National Security Council. Part of that, she had been the primary author of the 2017 National Security Strategy. Before her time at the NSC, Dr. Shadlow was a Senior Program Officer in the International Security and Foreign Policy Program of the Smith Richardson Foundation, where she helped identify strategic issues which warrant further attention from the U.S. Policy Committee. She served on the Defense Policy Board from September 2006 to June 2009 and is a full member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Dr. Shiloh is also the author of the book War and the Art of Governance, Consolidating Combat Success into Political Victory, and I believe that came out about a year or so ago. Right before I could, uh, I could not actually promote the book because I took a government job right when it came out. Yeah, but the, 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 I bet your publisher wasn't all that happy about that. So but welcome to SpyCast, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today. Uh, we'll be joining our conversation with one of your former colleagues and now one of my current colleagues, the Spy Museum Executive Director, Chris Costa. So welcome also, Chris. Good afternoon. So whenever I have someone who has had a long and distinguished career in the national security field, I, I want to start by asking what got you into this field in the first place? Like, what is your origin story? What what drove you to want to do this as a career? Um, well, I, I wasn't exactly sure, you know, what my initial interest, um, in, in this case it was in Russian, uh, would lead to. I think when I went to college, things were a little bit less systematic than they are today, where it seems that young people today have everything planned out at a much earlier stage in their lives. For me, it was just simply I thought it would be interesting to learn a challenging language, and I chose Russian at the time. And uh, learning Russian made me, um, you know, heighten my interest in Russian culture, Russian politics, and uh, at that time, U.S.-Soviet um, relations. And essentially, uh, after college, you know, you could sort of go two routes with that education. You could do something related to culture and literature, um, or at that time, it was the Cold War, uh, U.S.-Soviet uh, relations, problem sets, arms control, and I decided to go the latter route. And this is, you talk about during the Cold War, but probably the very, very end of the Cold War. Um, toward the end of the Cold War, but toward the end of the Cold War. If you, if you Google uh, Nadia Shiloh, you'll, you'll know why I'm asking that question, because we do tend to have a lot of uh, 
80-year-old guy, so you can tell how it was back in Berlin in the 60s. And that's not what we're dealing with here. You certainly, relatively early in your career, you were... Uh, you're a desk officer for Ukraine right after the fall of the Soviet Union. The first one, right? Right. Uh, right. So, yeah. So that, that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, toward the end of the Cold okay. War. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'd like to ask you, and you can answer this any way you want to, and certainly um, this is a question that comes up, but I, and I've talked to Chris a lot about this because he just comes from the National Security Council himself, but I want to ask about the working environment at the NSC, uh, mainly because there is a public perception of the White House being chaotic. Uh, but in Chris's case, we've had a lot of conversations about how the counterterrorism side of things was as professional as it gets, and it really didn't matter who was in the White House. Is that something that you experienced as well? Yes. I mean, the working environment on the NSC was wonderful. It was a great working environment. It was collaborative, focused, completely professional, filled with really smart people, um, many of whom had excellent senses of humor. So I enjoyed going to work every day. It was my pleasure to be able to go down the hall and knock on the CT door and then chat with my friend Chris Costa here and his colleagues. Um, uh, when General McMaster came into the NSC, his first priority was to restore the strategic competence of the NSC. That is, keep and make the NSC strong, but strong strategically. So it wasn't going to devolve and have all of these tactical level decisions um, to take tactical level decisions, uh, as in the previous administration, which I think is, is fair to say. Uh, instead, he believed that the NSC should be strategic, should provide options to the president, um, and that's what we did every day. I think history will show the quality of the papers was excellent, the quality of the discussions as recorded excellent, um, and it was really a good, strong process. Every meeting was designed to have a purpose, so every paper would begin with, you know, the purpose of this meeting is. Um, and it really was, a, 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 you know, a well-run organization. We, we had fun going, coming to work every day and sort of, you know, I blocked out the noise. I didn't have a TV. I rented an apartment, no TV. I'm not on Twitter. So I was in a happy little bubble. <laughs> Chris, what are you thinking? So... Uh Friday, April 27th is your last day at the NSC. It's a privilege to be able to talk to you about your experience, and it's incredibly enviable that you had one singular purpose, maybe more, but for the most part, it was to produce the national security strategy, not just for the United States citizenry, but really for the world, because they look to us to understand our frame of reference. So. First of all, uh, I'm congratulations for that. It, you. Uh, you accomplished very much, and you got it done in less than a year. And as I understand things, this administration was the first to publish an, NS, an NSS in the first inaugural year. If that's correct, again, congratulations. So what's next? What is next for you before we dive the NSS? Uh, where are you going to land? Oh, I'm I'm really not sure. What's next first is probably just taking a solid month off and <laughs> uh, and doing nothing related to national security, reading good fiction or reading spy novels. How about that? I'll All ask right. you, I'll ask you guys for your favorite spy novels. So how does it feel right now then? Um, well, it feels good. I feel a sense of accomplishment. I mean, I had an opportunity to work with really smart people. Uh, this is, you know, this is a document that was produced by all of us. I mean, I, I, you know, led an effort, which means led a team, but it was a team effort. Um, 
And I was lucky because I had autonomy to do something like this. And, and, and with a relatively short amount of time, you need autonomy. And I think those listening who might work for bureaucracies or the government understand how important that is. Uh, in some ways, our job was easier than DOD's job because they had to, you know, when you're doing a DOD document, you have to clear so many levels and layers. And I didn't have to do that. And that was really important. Um, that didn't mean we weren't collaborative because we were actually very collaborative, which was why in the end there was little dissension about the document. For the most part, everyone liked it, was happy with it. Again, I think underreported overall. Uh, imagine all the principals around the table, Secretary Mattis and Secretary Mnuchin and Secretary Ross, and everyone agreed with the document. Um, you know, that really wouldn't make an interesting story, I guess. Um, <laughs> So I felt uh, I feel that the document and its description of the competitions that the United States faces um, sets the country in a positive strategic direction to restore um, our strengths and ensure that our advantages um, are maintained. Let me let me take a step back to make sure that everyone understands what we're talking about. The national security strategy is something that doesn't get a ton of press. I think actually President Trump rolled it out in a much more public way than it has been in the past. And so that one got a particular uh, attention. Um, and this came out uh, in December of 2017, so it's been a couple months. And it's a congressionally mandated document. This is something that every administration is supposed to do. Um, and it really outlines the appraisal of interests and threats and possible global security environment policies that we need to be paying attention to. So I want to ask you, because people may hear the phrase national security strategy and think of it as just more Washington speak or throwing around a lot of acronyms and a lot of vernacular here. Uh, and then there might not be a lot of meaning to the words in this title, but, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm going to let you do that, but I expect you probably disagree that this is just another phrase, particularly with the word strategy, uh, you know, looking at some of the stuff you've written in the past and in kind of your perspective of how strategy really plays a role in this. Um, well, well, I think this was, you know, I think we approached it as the first step towards strategy is understanding the problem sets and opportunities we face. So what does the world look like? So we describe the world as uh, being a competitive place, that there are economic competitions, military competitions, political competitions. Um, and we needed to understand the nature of those competitions and that we were losing ground across many of them. All of them are accelerated by technology, so those listening, you know, in the tech sector can help us understand, you know, how does technology and information and data change the, change the character of these competitions? Um, we tried to draw that out in the document a little bit. And given that, uh, what does the United States need to do as a nation to preserve our advantages and maintain our advantages into the future? So I think it's important to note this is not just a, this is not just about military competitions. These are about economic competitions that American businesses are feeling every day, about political competitions that are being played out, uh, you know, on in, on all of these platforms. Uh, bad ideologies, radical extremist, jihadist ideologies, um, uh, you know, repressive systems that want to manipulate information. Those are inherently political. It's a, it's a political contest. So we approached the strategy as. Um, how can we get the American people to understand the nature of these competitions? Because ultimately, America's success and our ability to prevail will depend upon actual individuals, businesses. Um, it's not all about the government. So I want to tackle this document and break it down a little bit as much as we can, uh, mainly because a lot of what is available out there via the press and a lot of the reviews of this from outside of the administration 
really tend to be pretty partisan from a very partisan perspective. And I mean, by that, I mean a lot of things that were very favorable to this had a kind of raw, raw pro administration and people who uh, seemingly in, in normal situations might take this more objectively tended to have a this is a Trump administration document, so I'm going to tear it to shreds before I've even kind of gone through it. So I do want to approach this from a very objective standpoint. Sure. But I know Chris was was getting in my like he reminded me because I usually do this, but we like to kind of look at things that other shows might not. And, and I think the big question here is Process. how the hell did this come together? Right? You've already talked about this being a kind of a collaborative effort. Um, but working through the nuts and bolts, I mean, you've written stuff not quite like this, but to this extent. Uh, right. Can you actually both kind of dive into that idea about how these big major policy positions get done? So from my seat, first of all, uh, Nadia is being extremely modest. She built a consensus within the, the NSC. You reached out to academicians. You talked to directors like me, senior directors like me, um, you reached out to other scholars, you did a lot of outreach and you pulled together the team. So if you could talk, and I think I know some of the, the answer that you'll provide, but I think it would be useful for the listeners to understand the process itself. Well, we did, we did reach out to lots of people, and that's uh, partly because, you know, the, the best ideas are not all in government, right? I mean, you really need to be open to um, the, the ideas outside of government, and my background was really all about supporting those ideas outside of government and recognizing the richness of, of the intellectual kind of landscape out there. So I felt lucky that I, I knew so many smart people and so many were willing to come in and talk to us about the key issues. Um, Essentially, you know, we took a very collaborative approach, uh, which I think is is the right way to lead and the right way to do documents. Um, you know, in, in any situation, you want people to feel that they have had buy-in into a document, and that's really the only way that you end up uh, having a chance of achieving some of the outcomes. So I think an underappreciated uh, part of strategy is, in a sense, coalition building. Uh, so we build co you build coalitions of people that have a stake in the document, have a stake in the ideas. And so ideally it should be implementable, implementable if that's a word, without you, right? They should have a, um, its own, its own um, constituency to implement these different parts. And I think that that worked. Uh, so I think even though I'm departing and even though um, – you know, th there'll be change, uh, changes in leadership probably on the NSC. Um, this is a White House document, and department and agencies want to see the priority actions and want to see elements of it implemented. So I'm feeling optimistic about that. How much does rhetoric matter in this document, word choices? I mean, should we be reading beyond that to look at kind of the meat of this? Was it, um, I, I thought it was interesting, and, and what I'm trying to get at here is uh, – Terminology that popped up during the campaign found its way into this document. I'm thinking of America first. But that was really interestingly redefined by you moving forward because it, it you know, started out as something very jingoistic. Uh, but in this document, it takes it in a very different direction. So I, there are knee-jerk reactions out there saying, oh, this is a document talking about it. But you, can you talk a little bit about kind of the direction you took that in? No, I, I would I would push back and say no. I, th I think the initial interpretation of America First that a part of the media had automatically and, and been very critical of an idea which in fact had always been perceived. I mean, um, this is the pre this is the president's document. This is a White House document. 
uh, America first is not America alone. That was stated, you know, very early on. It was a sense that America had to basically just step up and better protect its interests. America first is about being confident in the United States and who we are. And so, um, you know, this is a document that that brought together the president's speeches um, uh, during his campaign and then later. If you read his speeches from January through, um, you know, through the spring and the summer, uh, the U.N. speech, the Warsaw speech, the APEC speech, and uh, more, um, you'll see um, a consistency because this this is a presentation of, of his national security strategy. Um, so I, I would I would push back a little bit mm-hmm. on that. Well, let me, let me, is it wrong for me to assert that this national security strategy has a pretty conscious refocus on state actors, on, on looking at the great power struggle that, you know, had what Fukuyama wants to talk about, the end of history back at the end of the Cold War is now either never went away or has reappeared and, and kind of we need to refocus on that. And so this is a two-part question, one for you, if I'm, if I'm misreading that or if that's what's there, and then two kind of maybe for Chris in this case of what does that mean for the counterterrorism policy uh, that had been developed in the last year? Or does it mean anything? Or is that now integrated into the broader policy? Yeah, I think the document basically highlights that, look, we had we've, we sort of ignored the trends over the past 10 years of the direction that Russia and China were going in as, as state actors. Um, um, and, and, you know, in particular, uh, but also, you know, the, what, what was happening with Iran, also a powerful state actor in its, in its region. Uh, so it just refocused attention on activities which had been occurring, but which we had chosen not to really pay enough attention to, I think. So it wasn't that, you know, it was necessarily new. These were not new activities. If you talk to experts in all these areas, they'd say, no, this has been going on for some time. But this was an effort to say in a document, hey, look, we need to pay some more attention. I mean, Chris, is this something that is now saying that this, for lack of a better term, global war on terror is rounding, is winding down, is wrapping up? Did we win? Did we just decide to leave? Or, or is this something that is just stating the obvious, like what Nadia just said, that this has been there, we're just you know, saying it out loud, that these problems and these challenges have been there all along? No, it's a, it's a great question you raise. And uh, I've had the benefit of some reflection for the last few months uh, from leaving government to where I am now at the International Spy Museum. And I, will, I would argue that uh, our focus on state actors is rebalancing the world in, in a way that we hadn't focused on because we were so focused on counterterrorism. That won't abate from the standpoint we'll continue to put pressure on our adversaries. And I think that this document and I should mention we don't have a national counterterrorism strategy, but I'm very pleased that the national security strategy does such a great job of defining uh, the enemy and prioritizing our actions. But our view in the CT directorate was CT every day, all the time. Our view of the world was through a CT lens. In many ways, that's far too narrow. There are many more complexities. And I think that the NSS provides a framework to, to rebalance and reprioritize. Um, it has been a decade, almost two decades now since 9-11. We haven't had, knock on wood, a catastrophic 9-11 um, type attack, and I hope we don't. And I credit that to the intelligence community and the military and our uh, our international partners. But that said, we had to relook our priorities. And there is, 
a, a tract out there. There is a, um, um, there have been some writings that suggest that uh, our receding presence in the counterterrorism space means other countries are going to have to fill that gap. And I would argue that we're going to be there to work with our international partners. But we also have to make sure that we adequately address other priorities. Um, so I think it's about right. We'll see. Time will tell. And also, I mean, you're, you're definitely the CT expert, Chris, but I think, you know, uh, successful CT strategies have to account for the support that states provide terrorists. So it's, you know, you're working with states when, all, when you're doing all of your activities Men, in many, many cases. You know, states have to cooperate or should cooperate or we put pressure on states. And so terrorists are, are these entities and terrorist groups working within states. Right. That's exactly right. And I would just add one follow-on to that, and that means our integrated regional strategies that General McMaster pushed uh, so hard. I think that's going to address some of the state actor piece of the CT puzzle. Right. And, uh, for example, realigning our Arab block, if you will, as that plays out. Again, more, more to follow. There are some geostrategic shifts that are happening that I think will be a successful backdrop for very good CT work in the region. So the, the document itself is broken into four pillars um, of, that are kind of foundation for this strategy. Uh, the first really the first two focus internally uh, with, with a kind of an external uh, bent to them. Uh, the first is protect the American people, the American way of life, uh, as it should be. That sounds like something you want to start off the gate, and this is everything from borders and immigration infrastructure. One thing that stood out to me, and so I tried to find things that I thought were, were particularly interesting, was the cyber section. Mm -hmm. Because there is a, a sentence in here uh, that jumped out at me. I want to ask you about it, because I think this is a conversation that people in the cyber profession, and even those outside who've been paying attention to it, have had for quite some years. And that's this sense. It says, the United States will impose swift and costly consequences on foreign governments, criminals, and other actors who undertake significant malicious cyber activities. What does that mean? I mean, I, that's been this conversation, right, for, for 20 years about do we react to a cyber attack with a kinetic response? Do we attack with our own cyber response? Like, is, have we moved that conversation forward to having a better idea of how we are going to respond to these kind of attacks? I think it's it's definitely a, um, a signal that we we're mo we are moving the conversation forward, but probably more importantly, the actions forward, right? So it it is a signal of a shift to say, hey, we're not necessarily going to take it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> that you know we've sat back and and let these attacks happen and been concerned about risk, about escalation, and maybe we also need to be concerned about the damage that's being done to our systems, to our businesses. We need to rethink the nature of offense and defense and cyber. And these are just things I'm throwing out now mm -hmm. as my personal ideas, but right. I think they're legitimate ideas to think about. What's offense and cyber? What's defense and cyber? Are they clearly defined spheres right. as in other forms of war? And you know, even overall and in war, they're they're um, you know they're they're gray areas, let's say. Is it but I think cyber, especially. Do, do you agree, Chris? I absolutely yeah. agree. I, and I think a lot of what you just talked about is being exercised in the debate. The conversation is happening. And we have to settle some of those questions. We are in a relatively new frontier. Well, and I think that, you know, if you look at nuclear strategy going back to the 1940s and 50s, a lot of our deterrent was based on our adversaries knowing what we were going to do. Right? They understood very well that if they attacked us with nuclear weapons, what the repercussions would be. And I mean, that's still our policy today, right? 
do we need something similar for, for cyber? Do people need a clear and concise, here's what's going to happen if you do X, Y, or Z? Or is it better to keep people guessing? I mean, I, I, is there an answer to that question? I'll leave it to the, you know, the cyber strategy that, that's being, uh, you know, drafted now, not yet out, but my understanding it will be out uh, relatively soon um, to decide how much you want to publicize what your actions are likely to be. But I certainly think the language in the NSS indicates that we are thinking about cyber in a different way, and we probably need to be more proactive about protecting our interests. It's also not just a government uh, solution set, right? Private businesses need to kind of understand, hey, what, what are, what's their role? What role should they be playing? Uh, where does the government need to be more helpful, less helpful? Obstacles, um, but I think we need almost, we need private businesses to come in and say, "Look, this is what we think about the problem set uh, too, as well, because they're being hit." We'll be right back after this. And now a message from Cyberbit: Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. There's also in the same section a disproportionate amount, but I think an appropriate amount, of a focus on bioweapons and pandemics. And that, that seems to be relatively new to this broader conversation. Did that come from any kind of policy prescription? I'm not saying don't give away anything you can't give away, but is there, is it, you know, is there people at the Pentagon, is Secretary Mattis more interested in that, is DHS more interested? Is that something that um, is a, a dominant focus of the president or the National Security Council or anything like that? It's actually a big concern of the president. He's concerned about pandemics. Uh, I mean, an- anyone who reads anything about pandemics should be concerned, right, because it's a pretty scary. It's, they're pretty scary once you read about them. We just spent a year where thousands, tens of thousands of people died from the flu. So I think it was an effort to say, look, we just have to continue um, in improving our detection efforts to make sure that we catch those bio threats before they get here. So. So let me move on to the second pillar, because this is about promoting American prosperity, and this is the stuff you would expect, again, rejuvenate American economy, trade fairness, leaders in technology, stop stolen intellectual property. But there is a a phrase in this uh, that jumped out at me, uh, energy dominance, Uh, and I think it's jumped out at some other people as well. Um, That was something I wanted to ask you about, because it it seems like we are in a a bit of a back and forth with the only other country in the world that could potentially challenge us in energy dominance, and that's China. Um, MIT just reported that China just added 10 gigawatts of solar power in the first three months of this year, which is the equivalent of 10 nuclear power plants in three months. are they running away with the alternative energy market? I mean, how do we catch up? It's certainly not burning more coal. I don't even think, I mean, even 
even the president is arguing for the kind of all above approach. But is there a kind of a concerted effort to figure out energy policy moving forward? The term definitely indicates that America is going to fully exploit its its natural resources um, in in the energy domain, as the document says, to be a leading producer, consumer, and innovator. Um, this helps our economy. This helps our geopolitical partners because we can provide them with options against countries that want to use energy to coerce. Um, it helps, uh, you know. Uh, I think I said our, our economy. Um, so basically, I think it was more with with that in that in mind. Um, we were thinking about what we needed to do as a country uh, to take advantage of our wealth in energy and our domestic resources. So Chris, I'm going to pull you in on this one, Chris. Is that third pillar really now? We're start talking about foreign policy stuff, and this is the kind of peace through strength pillar. Uh, I won't bring up the fact that there's like basically three paragraphs on intelligence in this entire however many <laughs> word page document. Um, but I do want to ask you about the rebuild the military because it, it's there's clearly a focus on that, which is uh, as an ex army guy, I'm certainly happy with. But I wonder where does soft power fit in all of this? Where where does that? Um, and, and this is something I've given Chris grief for since the very beginning, talking about a counterterrorism strategy. And I go, you didn't have one; you had counterterrorism tactics. But where's the counterterrorism strategy? So I'm wondering if, if this includes kind of broader thoughts about. Winning the peace versus just winning the war. Well, I think there are two places we don't we don't use the term soft power in the document. The president doesn't use the term soft power, but we describe um, essentially using different tools, non-military tools, economic and political, um, to shape political and economic outcomes in a more positive direction. Soft power comes from confidence, and we talk about confidence in the document. We're confident as a nation. We're confident that America is a force for good in the world. Um, we discuss helping aspiring partners, partners that want to do the right thing, that are working toward creating successful societies. Those are societies that treat women equally, that respect rule of law, that are transparent, that are generally associated with democracies. Uh, the term successful societies uh, allows you to, I think, avoid some of the the debates that get people off track. And you can say, look, does this help you become a successful society or not? So there is actually a lot of what's traditionally called soft power in the document, but we don't use that mm -hmm. term. Let me kick this in your direction, Chris, because the CT stuff that still remains in this document seems to be almost exclusively military. While there might be broader views, like Nadia said, about uh, you know strategic soft power, um, what's left for CT tends to be more kill them where they are and not a lot of focus on you know, we, we can walkily use the term CBE or dealing with some of the underlying issues with, with terrorism. Do you see it the same way or am I making this no, up? No, to be sure, I mean, we talk about credible voices to counter the malign messaging. We call out Iraq as a strategic partner that we have to bolster. So again, I think that we're establishing a framework in this doc document uh, to, to support other CT efforts. But candidly, last year, realizing this will be a longer-term document, but last year we focused very much on uh, tactical operational levels of war to get after ISIS in particular. But I think the framing is about right to start working on, again, we won't use the word soft power, but other, uh, other instruments of power beyond the military. We do make uh, the point that we have to work uh, diplomatically. We have to focus on information. And 
although intelligence is only mentioned briefly in the document, it clearly says all the right words to continue uh, providing a competitive advantage in that space. And we also talk about things like TCO, right, uh, transnational criminal organizations, and some of that gets to, you know, some of the uh, illicit tra trafficking issues that are related to terrorism. And uh, I think that we have focused the right, right wording to frame the problems going forward so we can use different tools. Does that make sense? Not yeah, and I would just sum up and say soft power uh, requires confidence in uh, who you are as a country. And so I think ultimately by talking about America in a confident way and discussing our country and our values and our principles in a confident way helps us in the soft power game. I don't, want to, I don't want to marginalize your, your entire career, Chris, but is it is it possible that it's time to kind of reintroduce counterterrorism as just one of the important concepts underlying national security instead of focusing so much on it? I mean, think back in the, the 80s and the 90s where counterterrorism was an important part of, but it was not as prominent as it is today. Or is it time for, I mean, or does this document do that, kind of refocus counterterrorism as one of many potential threats and interests and strategies that we have to think about moving forward. Yeah, I think I think exactly how you char characterized it is about right, that we are rebalancing. As I said earlier, I think we've, we have focused for two decades, almost two decades, on, uh, on the world through a CT lens. And I think we have to be not only strategic, but we have to look uh, forward to a world that has changed since 9-11 in many other ways. And uh, I think it actually reinforces in many ways. It's a backward compliment to CT professionals in the United States and to our intelligence community that we are de-emphasizing it somewhat. Um, that's not to say that we are not all about pillar one, which is keeping America safe. But I think we'll do that quietly while we also focus on other areas that maybe we neglected a little bit. I don't know if you agree with that, Nadia, but I think we neglected some areas that I think we're, we're refocused on in this document. Um, yeah, I think it addresses areas we might have neglected. But, um, you know, I think that, as pillar one says, uh, you know, terrorists, we, we want to protect Americans from, from terrorists. It's a priority, right, and all of the things you need to do to do that. Um, it's hard. Chris has been in the front lines of this for his whole career. Uh, certainly I, I haven't. Uh, so I think it's, a, a, um, it's, a, it's maybe bringing, bringing these two sets of threats up, up to, um, you know, so we recognize that both exist. I mean, as a country, we do need to do several things at once. It's just right. the name of, you know, it's what we have to do, right? You have to protect Americans from terrorism while keeping your eye on what China and Russia are doing as well. It, we, we've just had uh, the French President Macron here uh, for a couple days in Washington, uh, and you've talked in the very beginning about how America first doesn't mean America alone. So let me talk about foreign partnerships. Because to me, I, I think that this is an interesting component because there's a lot of conversation about that inside this document that's kind of looking at Pillar 4, which is working with, with uh, with our multilateral organizations and our partners around the world. What, though, happens when partnership goals don't link up with our goals? Like when, when France or one of our closer NATO partners have different directions they want to go in than we do. How do we, how do we consummate that relationship while at the same time keeping 
our interest in mind uh, and work together on things that are so important to the world. I mean, I'm thinking about stuff like terrorism, obviously, but things like climate change, things like pushing back against Russian influence. Um, when, because, sorry, I, I, the French themselves just did something very similar uh, to this uh, in 2017 also. And they, they have, it's almost word for word identifying the same threats. But there's a lot of difference. I think there's, a, there's some space between the prescription to fight those threats, where it's kind of more focused on the multilateral side versus the strength side. Now, I'm wondering, is, there, is are we worried about reconciling that? Do we think that that will come together on its own? Or is that something like, this is saying, here's what we're going to do, and then we can figure out how to work together later on? Well, I think that's where the art of diplomacy comes in, right, and statecraft. Uh, you're not always going to agree with your allies and partners, but in many, many cases you do want similar outcomes. So you'll likely to agree on the outcomes, and the differences come in how do you want to get there. Right. So we do have differences with many of our European and allies and partners who traditionally do place more faith in multilateral institutions. Um, I would say it's fair to say, you know, probably more, um, more um, uh, French people place more faith in multilateral institutions than Americans. I have no I don't, I, that's that's just an impression, right? I don't have data to back that up, but my sense is probably that's the case. Um, that doesn't mean we don't want uh, the same thing. That doesn't mean we don't want to um, Im improve, you know, ensure that our environment remains clean, uh, that we have clean air. Uh, that means we all want to ensure that terrorists don't attack our citizens. But the, the way of going about that and our path toward that might differ. Um, and that's why, you know, good dip diplomats are important, statecraft and um, diplomatic statecraft is important. We talk about competitive diplomacy in the document, too, to understand that the world is competitive. So I think we need to keep our eye on that. I think uh, there's been a lot of, instead, a lot of focus on um, the dissension and not the common goals that we share with our allies and partners. Is this, is this document a recommendation to increase uh, our efforts in the diplomatic side? I mean, the, the I, I've I have to say that that would sound like a bit of a disjunction from reducing State Department budgets and cutting USAID and pulling out of the TPP and the Paris Climate Accords and NAFTA and NATO. And I, I, I think that there's a response to this. It's just tricky for me to hear this in a kind of reaction of um, kind of what direction we seem to be going in. Competitive diplomacy means that we understand the, the, the geopolitical landscape is a competitive place, place and that our diplomats need to be out there sort of on the front lines of this. Um, you know, reforming the State Department doesn't mean you do any less of that. It just means making choices um, within it. Mm -hmm. So we'll see now. I think Director Pompeo uh, will have his own vision of reform for the department. Um, my sense is he appreciates uh, the importance of uh, that diplomats play around the world. Certainly our military appreciates the importance mm -hmm. of our diplomats as well. Um, and again, I think it's, it's that adherence to um, agreements that are not in America's interest doesn't mean that we don't share some of those goals. It means that we believe that there are other ways of approaching those goals. There's a really interesting two sentences in this section. It says, we learned the difficult lesson that when America does not lead, malign actors fill the void to the disadvantage of the United States. When American does lead, however, from a position of strength and confidence and in accordance with our interests and values, all benefit. So I want to ask you about this because there has been a lot of talk in the last 20 years about China filling the leadership void, particularly in places like Africa and in, in, in uh, 
the, you know, the Asian subcontinent and in the Middle East. And then Russia also filling some of the void with more, you know, China with soft power, Russia with more energy and arms sales and a little bit more on the hard side. And, and for both of you, actually, because Chris, I'd like to bring you in on this as well. I, I look at Syria as an example of perhaps where, almost going back to my beginning question about rhetoric versus reality, because are we sending an interesting message to the Chinese and the Russians of the world, or even to our allies, when there's questions about staying in Syria and doing what it needs to be done, or whatever, right? Are we supporting certain factions? Are we, you know, are we going to say Assad needs to go? Are we pushing back against the Russians? You know, there's a tweet from the president one day, uh, and then a week earlier we kill a bunch of Russian mercenaries because they come after our forces. Is that part of this, let's keep them on the edge of their seat, keep people on their toes, or is it conflicting messages sending both to our potential adversaries and to our allies alike? I know that was a humongous question, but I think you get the gist of what I'm trying to ask. So my constant theme, again, uh, having the opportunity to do some reflection as I talk about counterterrorism in what intelligence, the intelligence community is doing in particular, I realize that that the vacuum problem really is is what we're reconciling right now. We have continued to work by, with, and through partners in the region. And yes, there were some mixed signals. I'm not in the administration, so I can't speak to where we are today and what the internal debates are like. But I would say that uh, there is a sense that we have to keep some kind of pressure on uh, on ISIS still uh, as they go go to ground. Some would argue that they're going to form. Uh, in a low-level insurgency, and there are vacuums, and uh, the Iranians will fill that vacuum. The Russians will fill those vacuums, and partners are looking for us to stay for the long haul. Now, that might be a very small footprint of soft, but there's every indication that we're going to have some small footprint long-term to stay there so others don't fill the void. And I should mention, it's really a metaphor for if you stand on the Golan Heights like I did last year and you look across the valley, you, you could see Lebanon in one direction, you're in Israel, you can see Syria, a disrupted landscape, there are Hezbollah in one section that you can literally see, and there are ISIS operators in another section. It truly is a a disrupted milieu, and uh, remains to be seen how it's going to play out in the future. But I think we have to put some pressure on uh, on ISIS and continue that pressure, mm-hmm. and we have to demonstrate to our partners that we are there for long term, just with a smaller footprint or a, di- a different uh, amount of force that's on the ground. I would only add, I think there's been an effort by the administration to also look at how other regional actors who have a stake in Syria and a stake in stability there um, can do more, um, to do more there. And I think that that's, you know, where the, the White House is, is, is going and looking. I mean, does that, does that include trying to assist them monetarily through arms, weapons, resources, or is that uh, a you're-on-your-own kid? Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Uh, I I think all of the above. I think we are looking for them to pay some of the bill because we are there trying to provide stability in, in, as I said, in a very disrupted environment. So I think we're looking for money. We're looking for forces on the ground. We're looking for help with reconstruction. That's my sense uh, as an outsider right now looking in. How much much do we court... 
we're in, a, we're in a pretty enviable position as a country. We we uh, we can almost guarantee that we will have foreign partners because of our strength of our economy and the strength of our military and and just, you know everything since 1945 in the post World War II order. Basically, people will come along with us when we want to do certain things. In the last 20 years, and this is not an administration-specific question, this is kind of a bigger question, have we become somewhat uh, people that take that for granted, that our partners are going to come with us willingly? I think back to the very awkward press conference that George W. Bush did about going to Iraq, where he had to bring up the fact that Poland was with us. Don't forget Poland, and, and kind of the, the dragging others along, kicking or screaming, uh, versus, but both the... Bush administration in his second term and the Obama administration and even going back to looking at George H.W. Bush and the Clinton administration, trying to embrace partners and bring them along with us as kind of a uh, coalition of the willing versus a we're the strongest kid on the block and you better come along or else. I think we've moved to understanding that you need to build coalitions and it's not going to be easy to get everyone on board all the time and you have to make the case and make the argument. You have to understand the domestic political situations of many of our allies and partners. You know, I think a good example of that was the recent, um, you know, the the Trump administration's success in getting so many allies and partners to expel um, Russian spies Mm -hmm. from their countries. And that was really – that wasn't taken for granted. You know, that was work and effort and active diplomacy and actively, you know, just working to get our allies and partners there together. Um, so I think there was a sense that you um, – America could, could catalyze good things, which is another theme of the document. We can catalyze good things, but I don't, I don't think we take our allies and partners for granted. Well, you brought up Russia, and I think that's interesting. I'm not going to ask you too many questions about that, um, even, <laughs> even though probably some of the audience will want me to. But I want to ask you – particularly about the – because it's very tough on Russia. This document is very, very tough on Russia. Um, and – but also on China. In a lot of cases, they lump – it lumps Russia and China together. Is this problematic? There's a bit of a different relationship the United States has with each of these countries, uh, certainly now more adversarial with the Russians and with the Chinese. But is there a risk that we push them closer together by kind of lumping them together? Yeah, I mean, the document's been been criticized a bit for that. But look, I think we're just kind of explaining what's out there, right? We are describing the landscape that's out there. It wasn't a deliberate effort to push them together. It was an effort to say, look, here are these sets of activities that our competitors are undertaking. We actually refer to them as as competitors, um, not adversaries. Um, And so I I think that that's important to just talk about the landscape as it is. Does this document provide us with a blueprint on how the administration is going to act. I mean, again, bringing up Russia, it's very tough on Russia. And you're right that there was just a considerable number of diplomats expelled from the United States and from other countries around the world. But that hasn't always been the case, and it may not be the case tomorrow, where the administration's views toward Russia. And I'm not for this, I'm not bringing up anything remotely involved with the election or anything else. It's just the, the relationship between uh, President Trump and Vladimir Putin and, and some of the statements in the past about wanting to get along with the Russians. I mean, are, are we seeing a sea change with this, this, this national security strategy? Um, or are we kind of looking back at the, the president who really wants to be seen as unpredictable and, and may not act directly according to what this document is saying? I mean, I'll just speak to actions. So um, actions over the past 12 months, 
vis-a-vis Russia have been pretty darn tough and, and I think much tougher than the previous administration. Not only are there sanctions and the expulsions and more Russians identified in the Global Magnitsky Act, which is sort of a human rights-related act, but the strikes in Syria also, you know, called out. I mean, the Russians, you know, they didn't admit it, but these were strikes, um, these were the use of chemical weapons aided and abetted by Russia. Those strikes, you know, recognized that. The president's language recognized that and called the Russians out, calling the Russians out on cheating on the INF Treaty. So, I get that question a lot, and I just say, look at the record. I mean, look at the record of actual actions and activities that have been taken. Um, so I think there's there's plenty to show for being tough on Russia. In addition, raising the issue of malign influence um, to really a national level. Also, uh, there's consistently been that language in in administration statements across departments and agencies. The FBI is doing work in this area. DHS is doing work in this area. Nikki Haley at the UN, you know, talks about this a lot. So, how much of that is top down from the Oval Office, and how much of that is kind of circular, kind of ruminating around? from whether the National Security Advisor or for the Department of Defense or from FBI or CIA? I mean, is it, is it, is it um, policy positions from the president that are, are being enacted, or, or are they just welcomed by the Oval Office? I mean, these, these, are, these are White House policies. Many of them are options that are, end up being approved by the president. We don't just, you know, make stuff up right. on the NSC and just say, hey, I think I'm going to do this now. Right, right. <laughs> so, at least I didn't. Chris, did you do that? <laughs> no, I tried not to. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I think one of the, 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 one of the last questions I have is, is really the kind of the nuts and bolts question is that this is a prescription for some significant changes and a significant way forward. But how do we turn this this document into reality? How do, how do we get beyond a somewhat gridlock Congress to get the budget for doing some of these things that are going to cost? I mean, we didn't talk about ballistic missile defense or some of the other things. They're going to have massive price tags. How do we go forward from this and turn this into policy? I think that's where, you know, we can use the help of your listeners and, and just the wider American audience. Um, you know, there's no, the document has this line in there that I like, there's no unalterable arc of history that suggests that, you know, um, Things are going to move in our direction. We need to be at the forefront to ensure that we defend American interests, take advantage of opportunities, recognize American strengths. Um, and to do that, it's not all government. In fact, I would say for the most part, it's, it's students, it's schools, it's businesses. Um, it's the best of America, grassroots America. Think about the decisions you make and think about how that helps us compete more effectively as a nation so that our interests and our values prevail because we have really good values out there and they're values that are shared by allies and partners and, and other democracies and open societies. There's one theme in the document that I think is not often emphasized and essentially it's a competition between open societies and those that um, favor closed, you know, repressed approaches. So, I mean, is it, is it that simple? Is it that binary or are there a lot of in-betweens? No, on the on the simple, it's you know, um, it's open and repressed society. No. So I think there's a, a, a good solid way of you know you can take most of our adversaries and, and competitors and put them in the close. They don't want open systems that allow creative ideas to flourish, different ideas to flourish, uh, different sorts of people, everyone treated equally. So I think in that sense it's fair. And I think sometimes you know, we downplay the value of simplicity. It's it's nice to have. Um, you know, right. simple characterizations yeah, yeah. can actually help you get to good outcomes, right? Everyone poo-poos that. And complexity sometimes ob- 
obfuscates, if I've said that word correctly, yes. <laughs> that complicated word. <laughs> so it hides what is right there. Right. So just uh, some final words. So again, Nadia, I'm, I'm very pleased uh, with how the NSS tied in counterterrorism priorities, how it defined the threat in the debates that we had, the terms of art, and also how we characterized our way forward. I'm very pleased with that, and uh, I just want to thank you. It was a pleasure uh, working with you, and I want to give you the last word. I want you to take the opportunity to really uh, offer some reflections and uh, turn it over to you. Well, I think, I think you know, I, um, just before when I was talking about the, the world being a competitive place, um, understanding that uh, we need to be out there as part of the competition and that we're a good country, and as the president said, you know, America is among the greatest forces for good in the world, and to remember that and be confident in what we have to offer. Um, and I think the, the strategy uh, sets a strategic direction. I'd encourage those to debate the content of it, the issues, uh, stay away from the personalities and the divisiveness in Washington, and look at the fundamental ideas in it and see if you agree or disagree. And if you disagree, that's fine. Um, just uh, it's part of the conversation. And you can find the national security strategy on the White House website. I would, I would go there. Right, because if you just Google it, you'll find all the people talking about it from all the different directions, and and read it clean first. I think then you can kind of see how other people think about it. But read it clean to start out, because it's an extraordinary document. Uh, again, to reiterate what Chris said earlier, um, the Goldwater Nichols Act of 1986 mandated uh, that these happen, and every administration has tried to get one out in their first year, and this is the first time it's been done. So again, to congratulate you on being able to pull that off. It's an extraordinary document, agree or disagree on it. But I do want to point out, because she can't, she's still technically on the clock, uh, even though this will post four days after uh, she, she leaves government service, that uh, her book, War and the Art of Governance, Consolidating Combat Success into Political Victory, uh, didn't get its pu- didn't get its publisher due. Uh, didn't she didn't get a chance to talk about it a whole lot. So it's definitely worth checking out. I think that a lot of the ideas that you'll find in the NSS uh, are 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 hinted at uh, in this book. Certainly, kind of her her, her views on the world, uh, and she's one of the top scholars in the world. And I can say that I don't. I probably don't agree with a, a lot of what you you know your foundational beliefs. We're from very different. <laughs> we're from very different ends of the political spectrum. Our audience knows I'm just to the right of Karl Marx in my political leanings. Um, you hit you hit that well. For yeah, me. I did my best. I almost, yeah, I almost um, trusted you. Yes, <laughs> but uh, but I think that we can all at this level. Uh, and I think that's why this national security strategy is so interesting. At this level, uh, we can all attack these things, and I mean that in a more academic way. We can have these bigger conversations. Intellectually, we can go back and forth and talk issues uh, because there there is a, a void in Washington right now about having these big, weighty conversations about things that matter. Um, and this is a great place to start. Uh, you may read it like I did and be like, no. No, no. But that's what's wonderful about this, right? That, that's where we get to have the opportunity to have these kind of conversations. So, Nadia Shadlow, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Best of luck a month or so from now when you finally figure out what you want to do with your life. Uh, you certainly have um, a lot of options, I would think, moving forward. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for being such a fair and pleasant interviewer. I appreciate it, and I'm, I, was, I really welcome the opportunity, and thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, Nadia.